podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out A Tad Predictable, hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. Good boys and girls, two-footed podcast on Thursday, the 23rd of February. We had some Champions League games last night. We have we have Europa League games and Europa Conference League games tonight. And we are edging towards another weekend of Premier League action. We'll start last night with Inter Milan 1, FC Porto 0. Romelu Lukaku with the only goal of the game to give Inter an important lead on 86 minutes. Otavio had been sent off on 78. It had been a fairly even game. I think the red card definitely made the biggest difference. Porto will be a little bit disappointed, but 
I think they'll still be confident enough going home only 1-0 behind. Inter, it's a good Inter team. It's not a great Inter team. And you'd look at some of those players. Skriniar, I, I don't know how committed he is to the cause. He is agreed to go to PSG for next season. I mean, you look at the wingbacks, Darmian and DeMarco, they're very average. Mkhitaryan's well past his best. Chalanoglu, he's never been a great player. And Barella in midfield. Barella is carrying that midfield. From a defensive point of view, that midfield is a liability. Up front, Laturo is in great form and Eden Dzeko continues to be a very good player, but he is now 36. So he is wearing down, but having him and Lukaku to rotate is a pretty nice situation to be in. I think they've got players on that bench that can improve their first team. Like for me, a Serbi, I've never been a huge fan of. Never been a huge fan of a Serbi. He's one that Inzaghi is very comfortable with having bought him for Lazio. He's now got him in on loan. There's a reason Lazio are willing to let him go on loan. I think De Vries is still a better player than him, even when he's not playing particularly well. Um, you've also got Brozovic on the bench. Not really sure what's going on there. He certainly should be starting in midfield. I think Christian Aslani should be starting as well. I think he's very good. Robin Gosens hasn't set the world alight. I'd still prefer him over Federico Di Marco as the left wing back. I mean, Darmian over Dumfries is just criminal. There's there's a better squad there than what Inzaghi's putting out. Um, as for Porto, it's it's far from a great Porto team. It really is. There's some good players there, but it's gone quite stale. Even though they're having a decent season, it has gone a little bit stale. But I still think they've got a really good chance at knocking Inter out and moving on. RB Leipzig won, Manchester City won. Riyad Mahrez puts you not puts. Did I say Manchester United? Manchester City won. Uh, Riyad Mahrez puts City one up on twenty seven minutes. Josco Guardiol equalizes on seventy. This game was everything that's wrong with City. City dominated the ball. City had the better chances in the game, but yet Leipzig had more shots on target, and Leipzig ended the game looking like more of a threat. It's still not working with Haaland up front. And this tricking around with this arrogant formation that Guardiola keeps rolling out just isn't working. And the continued obsession with starting Jack Grealish, who continually offers nothing, and the refusal to make substitutions, like these are things that Guardiola is doing that are harming his team. Now, He's not having nearly as bad a season as Klopp, but Pep has had a stinker this season. He really has. He's trying to be far too cute, far too clever, and he's displaying a level of arrogance that, really and truly, his team's not in a position to be that arrogant because at the moment you're staring at ending the season with nothing. Last night, though, there was opportunities for players to play balls in behind for Haaland, and they just ignored him. Just routinely ignored him.
City will go through. They will go through. They will beat Leipzig at home and they will go through. But they were very unconvincing last night. And that's a few unconvincing performances in this year's competition. They didn't seem to enjoy the physicality of Lamer and Schlager in midfield. I think a team with real pace out wide on both sides, not just one side like Leipzig had last night, could really hurt this Man City team. They'll go through, but I'm not I, I don't see them as winning I don't don't see them winning the competition this season. I think if they get Real, I think Real will spank them again. The way they spank Liverpool. Not not to the same extent, but I think they'll I think Real will go through comfortably. Uh Europa League tonight then. We have four games at quarter to six, four games at eight PM. Quarter to six, PSV versus Sevilla. Sevilla hold a 3-0 lead from the first leg and you would have to make them very, very strong favourites to go through. Nantes versus Juventus. 1-1 in the first leg. Juve will be favourites to go through because they're Juve, but Nantes are at home and Juve's European adventure might be coming to an end. And this is their only route in the next season's Champions League. So if... If Juve were to go out tonight, I wouldn't be surprised if Allegri was to go. Mitteljand won, Sporting won. 1-1 in the first leg. Mitteljand will be favourites at home, but Sporting are capable of going there and winning, without question. Monaco versus Leverkusen. Monaco won the first leg 3-2 in Leverkusen. Leverkusen threw it away, having been 2-1 up. This was the best game of the last run of games. I think it could be another belter tonight, so that's the one to watch in the quarter to six games. At 8pm, Union Berlin against Ajax. Nil-nil in the first leg. Union are having a really good season. Ajax have been quite shaky. I think I'd back the Germans to go through. Roma against Salzburg. Salzburg won 1-0 in the first leg in Austria. Roma will have to come from behind. But Mourinho is a master in Europe. And it wouldn't be any kind of surprise if he sees his team through here. Rennes against Shakhtar. Rennes... Should have won the first leg, but are in iffy form. Shakhtar with the 2-1 lead. You'd give them a, a good puncher's chance of coming out of that tie. And then Manchester United against Barcelona. 2-2, two, 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 I should say, in the first leg. And Barca set to be without both Gavi and Pedri. So not ideal. Not ideal at all. Uh, that should be a good game, though. Looking forward to that one. That's the pick of the 8 p.m. games. In the Conference League, again, we have four games at quarter to six and four at 8 p.m. Anderlecht against Ludogorets. Ludogorets lead 1-0 from the first leg. Anderlecht at home, you'd expect them to overcome that. Uh, Cluj against Lazio. Lazio lead 1-0. Lazio are the better team. I would expect Lazio to come through. Partizan at home to Sheriff Tiraspol. Partizan won away in Tiraspol last time, and I would expect them to hold on to that lead and get through. Uh, Dnipro against Larnaca. Larnaca won the first leg 1-0. Dnipro at home, though. Well, not actually at home. Not at home because uh, of the war in Ukraine. So whereas this game is being played in Slovakia. So advantage Larnaca, really. Advantage Larnica, to be fair. 
Um, moving on to the 8 p.m. kickoffs. These are all really tight bar one game. All of the early and late games in the Conference League are tight bar one. So we've got Ghent against Quarabag. Quarabag won the first leg 1-0. Ghent at home will fancy the chances of overcoming that. Lech Poznan against Bodo Glimps. 0-0 in the first leg. So that's all to play for. Basel against Trabzonspor. Trabzonspor won the first leg. 1-0. Really tight. Should be a good game. Basel will fancy the chances. They've always got one or two gems of players that they just have found in random places. And then lastly, it's Fiorentina against Braga. Fiorentina won the first leg 4-0 in Braga. Fiorentina should advance here with very little problem. So I, I think these Conference League games are really well balanced. But for me, the two games to watch tonight are Monaco versus Leverkusen at quarter to six and United against Barcelona at 8pm. Those are obviously UK times. Uh, moving on, we have bad news. John Motson has passed away. The longtime BBC commentator, known for many, many years as the voice of match of the day, the voice of the FA Cup final, World Cups, European Championships, an absolute legend, passed away at the age of 77. Mosson, for me, is one of the all-time great commentators. Him and Barry Davies had this very friendly rivalry, but they also pushed each other to continually get better and better and better. And I think when you listen to today's commentators, now I will make exceptions. Clive Tilsley's good. And obviously Peter Drury is excellent. But the rest, I genuinely think are quite poor. And I think what made the likes of of Motson and Davies and, and Drury and, and Tilsley so good is that they began on the radio. So they learned to be descriptive in their commentary. So when you'd watch a game with John Motson, you could close your eyes and you could still see the game because he was describing to you what was going on. He wasn't just telling you, he was describing it for you. When you when you watch a game with Martin Tyler or Sam Matterface, it's very paint by numbers. It's very much just telling you what's on the screen, what you're already aware of, what you can see with your own eyes. But these other group, these guys that came through on the radio and learned to be storytellers, the quality of their commentary and the quality of the experience that they give the viewer or the listener is just so far above what we get from the likes of Martin Tyler. Now, as we know, Martin Tyler doesn't really seem to enjoy football, um, especially when it's Liverpool or Arsenal or anybody who's not Manchester United. He doesn't seem to enjoy football at all. He seems quite put out by the fact that he's been made to work. And the the funniest thing is, like, if there was a massive age gap between 
Motson and Tyler, you'd say, well, that's fair enough. But there's not. There's two months. Motson was born July 1945. Tyler was born September 1945. But Tyler never worked in radio. He was a behind-the-scenes producer for years and years and years. Then he worked on TV, not very well, and somehow landed the Sky gig, largely because he was behind Brian Moore at ITV. Brian Moore, again, another phenomenal commentator, another one that began on radio, along with the likes of... Barry Davies, and Peter West. Peter West. Cricket, rugby. I'm not a cricket fan. I would have watched cricket with him commentating because he was so good. Brilliant at rugby. Barry Davies, to me, is maybe the the all-time great, but, you know, Brian Moore was in that that group. Um, Is it George Chapman? Was that his name? Was it was another one was for BBC used to cover the cover the Olympics mostly. Uh, no, not George Chapman. He was a serial killer. <laughs> uh, Olympics commentator. BBC. Oh, this is terrible that I can't remember his name. Oh, that's terrible that I can't remember his name. Is it John? John Champion? John Champion. This is him, isn't it? No, this is not him. No, no, he's another bad commentator. Champion's the one who does it with Ali McCoist. Yeah, no, he's another bad commentator. What is the guy's name that commentated on the Olympics for years? This is going to really annoy me, so I'm going to just completely uh, torpedo my own podcast till I find this out. BBC Olympic commentator. Uh, I know he commentated through the 70s and 80s, so we'll go with 1980s. David Coleman. David Coleman. Another brilliant voice. Brilliantly descriptive. He was so, so good. So, so good. And he could double as a presenter as well. But 11 Summer Olympics, six World Cups as well. Yeah, like these guys, these were like a golden generation of commentators. And it's about 20 years in the age difference between David Coleman and and John Motson, but Phenomenal. We've had some great ones in Ireland as well. We really have. George Hamilton is decent. Decent. Again, began on the radio. Michal Amur is incredible. And 
uh, he was always one that I, I very much enjoyed. Uh, Marty Morrissey, another good one. Not as good as Mihal, but still, still pretty good. But the one for me that I always loved was Jimmy McGee, because Jimmy McGee would turn his voice to anything. It didn't matter what sport it was. He was just phenomenally good at it. Boxing, football, some Gaelic games. Absolutely tremendous. And again, these guys are all kind of born between the mid-1920s and the mid-1940s. Martin Tyler's the only one that screws it all up. But we don't have commentators like this anymore. We don't have these incredibly versatile men that could turn their talent to different sports. And it's one of the reasons that watching football isn't as enjoyable anymore. Like I'd rather watch it. I'd rather watch a game in Arabic because the commentator will be excitable and frenetic. I'd rather watch a game with a Spanish speaking commentator because again, there's far more passion in it. Listen to John Motson, and it's, it's like he's narrating a funeral procession. Not John Motson, Martin Tyler. <laughs> yeah, it's started off to praise Motson. Motson was brilliant. You listen to Martin Tyler, it's like he's narrating a funeral procession. Sam Matterface, it, it's, you could just imagine him walking around his house really dully narrating whatever his wife and his kids are doing around the house. Oh, Young Timmy just opened the fridge. He closed the fridge. The wife just turned on the tap. She's looking at me, wondering why I'm doing this. She's cleaning a plate. She's put the plate down. She's coming towards me. She has slapped me. That is Sam Matterface. Awful. Awful. We we need more commentators like these gentlemen. Jimmy McGee, Motson, Davies, Coleman. These are the people we need commentating on our sporting events. Completely sidetracked myself, but that was worth it. I've decided that was worth it. Uh, the government white paper for the potential new independent regulator of English football has been released and the main purposes of the proposed new regulator will be stopping English clubs from joining closed shop competitions which are judged to harm the domestic game. Uh, That doesn't sit right with me. Preventing a repeat of financial failings seen at numerous clubs, notably the collapses of Bury and Macclesfield. This I'm fully on board with. Introducing a more stringent owners and directors test to pa- to protect clubs and fans. This is like closing the stable door when all the horses are miles and miles away. That This is just far too little, far too late. Giving fans power to stop owners changing a club's name, badge and traditional kit colours. I can get on board with this. I can get on board with this. I, I don't think it even needs fans involvement though. This is merely something you have clubs write into the constitution of their organization. That's a very easy fix. And it'll stop the pricking around like we've seen at Hull in the past, 
like we've seen at Cardiff, probably the most notable example. Yeah, absolutely. Ensuring a fair distribution of money filters down the English football pyramid from the Premier League. Once again, the Premier League being asked to carry the failing lower leagues um, rather than have them get their own houses in order. And then have people from those lower league clubs criticise the Premier League when the Premier League is the one holding you up. Like, that's never sat right with me. I I fully understand giving money back down the pyramid and especially to grassroots level. But there's far more important directions that that money could go in than to hold up clubs that are spending beyond their means. I'm torn on this regulator. I read the Crouch Report. I wasn't overly impressed by it. Um, I thought there was quite a lot of fluff and bluster in it. It was written with a very one-eyed approach. It was written from an approach of a person who'd already made their mind up before they began, or a a collective of people who had made their mind up before they began. There was no... There was no openness to anything other than carry on regardless. Everton and Leeds have been charged over their brawl. Brawl is probably a stretch. Nobody got lamped. Nobody was laid out. Um, McNeil and Adams had a little coming together. There was some pushing and shoving and Decoure and McKinney got involved and there was a bit more pushing and shoving and there was some handbags and a couple of Leeds players got, you know, excitable and a couple of Everton lads thought they were a bit tougher than they maybe are and then it all just kind of calmed down and a game of football broke out. Carabao Cup final, picking your combined 11. Oh, we'll do this. Uh, De Gea is the better goalkeeper. Right back, uh, we'll go with Trippier. Left back, it's Luke Shaw. Right centre back, Raphael Varane. Left centre back is Sven Botman. Holding midfielder, we'll go Casemiro. Two number eights, we'll go Bruno Fernandes and Bruno Gimerich. And in attack, uh, Rashford left wing. Going Almiron right wing and our number nine. It's one of the Newcastle boys. I'm just trying to decide whether it's Alexander Isak or Callum Wilson. We'll go Wilson. More consistent. <clears throat> so six to five in favour of Manchester United. Um, that's a pretty good team. De Gea, Trippier, Varane, Botman, Shaw. Bruno, Casemiro, Bruno. Almiron, Wilson and Rashford. That's a pretty good team. That's a better team than either of them can put out. We'll do the gossip. We'll go to break. We'll come back. We've got a few listeners' questions and we're done. Jordan Pickford is close to signing a new contract with Everton and Paul Joyce reports there is no relegation release clause. The bigger question is, is there a relegation wage cut? Barcelona manager Xavi says he is in constant contact with Lionel Messi. 
and he would be welcomed back, welcomed back home if he wanted to return to the Spanish club. Um, I think Messi should go back. I, I just it, it just doesn't sit right with me that he plays for PSG. Chelsea will sell Mason Mount in the summer if they fail to agree a new deal with the 24-year-old. Makes sense. Arsenal are set to battle out with Borussia Dortmund, Newcastle and Juventus for the signature of Real Valladolid's 18-year-old Spanish right-back Ivan Fresneda. Everybody wants him. Arsenal have also started contract extension talks with Granit Xhaka, who is keen to remain at the Emirates. Of course he's keen to remain at the Emirates. No one else is going to pay him that type of money. Um, When is Granit Xhaka's current contract out? It is out in the summer of 2024, when he will be 32 years of age. It will be a mistake to give him a new contract. It will be a mistake to give him a new contract. Because this is year six, seven, year seven for Xhaka. And yes, he had a good run of form but he's been poor for the last month. And that's the first good run of form he's had in, yes, what is six and a half, almost seven years at the club. He had a good run of form. Do not reward him with a new contract. He'll be 32. You're talking about extending him beyond that. That's that's a disaster waiting to happen. Liverpool are interested in Josco Guardiol. I'm interested in a Ferrari. My chances of acquiring one are about the same as Liverpool's chances of acquiring Josco Guardiol. Joao Cancelo says his loan move to Bayern was an opportunity he could not refuse after believing he should play more at Manchester City while Pep Guardiola disagreed. He's right. He should have played more. Manchester United's England left-back Luke Shaw and Portugal right-back Diogo Delot have done enough to secure new contracts. It's a low bar at United, but both of them have been quite good, um, particularly Delow this season. The agent of Marcel Sabitzer has hinted he could remain at Manchester United beyond the end of this season following his loan move from Bayern Munich. I think his agent is hoping he will remain at Manchester United because he will make a tidy chunk on agent fees and then a tidy chunk on an overinflated contract. Um... Napoli present, Aurelio De De Laurentiis um, has given Manchester United hope of signing Victor Osman after saying sometimes there are offers you can't refuse. Uh, I would imagine he meant offers in the region of about £200 million, not offers in the region of £80 million. Leicester City could look to sign Mahmoud Dahoud on a free transfer this summer from Borussia Dortmund. Do not be surprised if Naby Keita ends up at Borussia Dortmund as his replacement. Um, Dehoud is a very good player. Dortmund are going to let him go at the end of the season when his contract expires. It's in everybody's best interests. It's a shame he's never had the career he should have had. When he broke through at Gladbach first, he was sensational. Liverpool tried to buy him. It didn't work out because Liverpool went about things the wrong way. Then he ends up going to Dortmund the following year. And between injuries and inconsistency, it just never really landed with him. He had had two pretty good seasons, the two seasons before this, but this season he's not been able to get enough game time. Um, 
a player I do very much like, but he's just never, never hit the heights that he should have. Uh, former England goalkeeper Ben Foster says he does not coming out of does he does not regret the chance to come out of retirement and sign for Newcastle because he'd potentially be the first choice goalkeeper going into this cup final. But it is what it is. Uh, Ryan Fraser is training with Newcastle's under twenty ones and is expected to leave the club in the summer. Do you know? You know things have gotten a little bit toxic with Fraser. If Eddie Howe is sending him to the under twenty ones, because Eddie Howe made his career at Bournemouth, made his career, and for this to happen, it just it just suggests that there's been a significant falling out. They had a little bit of a falling out towards the end at Bournemouth as well, it is worth noting, um, because his contract ran out before the season ended because of the pandemic and how he just let him go because he wasn't willing to commit to signing on for the month. I think he'd already agreed to go to Newcastle at that point. And that is the gossip, right? We will take a break. When we come back, we have four Five listeners' questions. So see you in a sec. Right. Welcome back. So, listeners' questions. Tiberius Sportsball asks, choosing from current Premier League squads, pick a best likable 11 and a best unlikable 11. Who would win and who would you have managed the squads? Right. Let's get into this. Get my Premier League table up here. And we'll go... Back to front. So let's have a likable goalkeeper and an unlikable goalkeeper. I would say Jordan Pickford is the unlikable goalkeeper. Likable goalkeeper. I'm biased, but I don't know how you could not like Allison. Just seems like a genuinely good human being. We're going to go, Alison. Right in defence. Um, I think Ben White is wholly unlikable. I think there's just an arrogance about him that he doesn't warrant. I think Andy Robertson would be the unlikable left back just because he winds people up. Um. Unlikable centre-backs. Martinez. Just Lissandra Martinez. Just not not a likable person. <laughs> or, or he's not a likable player. He might be a nice... He might be a nice fella. He probably is a nice fella. Fairness. Uh, another unlikable centre-back. 
Um, Zuma. Fella kicks cats. We're putting him straight in. Uh, the number eights for this unlikable team have got to be Bruno Fernandes and Bernardo Silva, both of whom I would imagine you adore if they're your players and despise if they're not. Uh, Casemiro is an unlikable player. No. Do you know what? It's Thomas Partey. It just is. It's Thomas Partey. Um, unlikable forwards then. Uh, Greenwood. Yes. It, can we count him? Because yeah, we're, we're putting them in. We're putting them in. And do you know what? I don't like me. I don't like Jack Grealish. Because I like. I know Jack Grealish has a lot of good stuff away from, but we're talking about as players. And Jack Grealish is a diving cheat, so he's going in. And then our number nine, it has to be Diego Costa, doesn't it? It just has to be. So we've got Pickford, White, Zuma, Martinez, Robertson, Bruno Fernandes, Thomas Partey, Bernardo, Greenwood, Costa, and Grealish. We'll send it to the judges for final ruling. If they say it's a no on Mason Greenwood because he's obviously not playing, because, I mean, otherwise we'd have Benjamin Mendy in there. Um, I think, well, actually, do you know what? Because Richarlison has to, we're going to put Richarlison as the nine instead of Costa, because Costa's kind of irrelevant these days. And then I think Gabriel Jesus if it's not Greenwood, we're going to put Gabby Jesus purely because of his face. Like, he has a face that just always looks like he's about to start crying, and it bothers me. So Greenwood, but if he's ineligible, Gabriel Jesus will slide into the number nine spot, and Richarlison will move right wing. Grealish is in regardless, because I just don't like the way he goes about his business. The midfield picks itself. I think the back four is solid, and it's definitely Pickford. Uh, who would be the manager? Southampton and Leeds don't have managers. Moyes is inoffensive. Gary O'Neill is inoffensive. Dyche is a good man. Lopetegui is a good man. Rogers is definitely a contender here. A wholly dislikable person. Uh, Steve Cooper is a good guy. Vieira is a good guy. Emery is a good guy. Graham Potter seems like a good lad. Thomas Frank seems like a diamond. Klopp is a diamond. Deserby's a diamond. Um, Marco Silva seems a nice fella. Eddie Howe's got a little bit of arrogance better, but we're going to let him off. Conte seems mental, but I think he'd be all right. Uh, Ten Hag seems fairly inoffensive on the whole. Pep is a strong contender here, and Arteta is a strong contender here. So I, I think it's got to be Pep. With assistance from Arteta and the Brodge. Now, our likeable 11. Alisson will be our goalkeeper. Um, Our likeable defenders. 
Oh, this is tough. This is tougher than I thought it would be. I think Zinchenko at left back seems like a decent fellow. Right back. I think I, I think a lot of people think Trent is quite arrogant, so we won't put him in. Reese James doesn't it seems a little bit arrogant. Matty Cash seems like a nice lad. We'll go Maddie Cash. Um, Central Defenders. I think Virgil's very likable, but I could be wrong. I can't abide Connor Cody. Can't abide him at all. He speaks out of both sides of his mouth. Got far too high an opinion of himself. And I say that as somebody who has far too high an opinion of themselves. Um, I am going to say... I'm going to say Virgil... And... I think Americ Laporte. Matip, that's a shout. That is a shout. Matip is, is kind of universally adored, mostly because he's just a ridiculous human. We'll go Matip. Um, midfield then. How could you not love Thiago? How could you not love him? We'll put him in. We're also putting in Ilke Gundigan, who is notoriously nice as a person. And our third midfielder, I think Bruno Gomerich. He's just always happy. And in attack, Haaland seems like a big, cuddly teddy bear. Mikhail Saka has to be in, and I think Marcus Rashford has to be in. So, manager, it's Klopp. It just is Klopp. It's Klopp with assistance from Thomas Frank. And Eric Ten Hag. We'll give them the nod. <clears throat> so, Alison, Matty Cash, Joel Matip, Virgil van Dijk, Zinchenko, Gundigan, Bruno Gomerish, Thiago, Saka, Haaland and Rashford. Uh, they're going to win. The good, the nice team, the likeable team are going to win because we we're not voting for the bad guys today. Right, that'll do that. Let's move on. Uh, your all-time female 11 says AMK2889. 
I actually saw this one um, come in last night, so I was able to do a little bit of a uh, little bit of prep on this one. So I actually got my team. Hope Solo is my goalkeeper. I think she's the best female goalkeeper that women's football has ever seen. Um, I know she's been retired now for, I think, six, nearly seven years, which is a shame because she was still very, very good at the time she retired. So we're going to go Hope Solo, um, resident lunatic. We'll go Lucy Bronze at right back, I think, here. Uh, currently playing for Barcelona. And I think Millie Bright as one of the centre-backs, England and Chelsea. I think she's the kind of the female Puyol type. A proper leader, a proper organiser, brings an aggressive style to the game. Uh, Irene Paredes of Barcelona and Spain will go in next to her. And then Paredes' centre-back partner at Barca is Mappy Leon. We're going to play her left-back because she is left-footed. She's really good on the ball, really good set-piece taker. I want Millie Bright in, so I'm moving Mappy Leon to left-back. I'm happy with that defence. Um, I'm going to play Christian uh, Christine Sinclair, Canada and Portland, Portland Thorns uh, forward. I'm going to play her a little bit out of position as a right-winger. She'll still get me goals. I'm going to go Jess Fishlock, Wales and... Um, Ol- O.L. Rain, Seattle Rain, going to play her in central midfield. That's a that's a biased pick. Uh, Jess is one of the best players ever, in fairness to her. But I've also had her on a previous podcast, so um, I always keep an eye out for her. So, yeah, going to go Jess Fishlock. Alexia Putellas, probably the best female player in the world now. Uh, back-to-back Ballon d'Or winner, so we're going to go with her. Megan Rapinoe, I'm going to play her on the left. Uh, US and also plays for what was the Seattle Reign, now OL Reign because Olympic Leon bought them. Uh, up front, Ada H- Hegerberg, uh, Leon, tremendous goal scorer. Also a uh, Ballon d'Or winner. Great player. And Martha, the Brazilian who plays for Orlando, uh, going to play her as the as the kind of second striker of Hegerberg. So Solo, Bronze, Bright, Paredes, Leon, Sinclair, Fishlock, Patelas, Rapinoe, Marta and Hegerberg. I'm not huge on women's football, but I'll watch it if it's on and I've got nothing else going. And from what I've seen, those are the players I'm going to go with. Um... Moving on, Matt JT, is there, a, is there a club and a team from another sport that Liverpool can look at as a model to fix their off-field and on-field problems and stop the rot? From another sport, so the, the ones I always look at as the model franchises are the New England Patriots, the San Antonio Spurs, the Golden State Warriors and the Atlanta Braves as fr- as franchises that I always look at and think no matter what you're well run like your salary cap is going to be in a good position 
your salary sheet rather cap sheet cap sheet yeah cap sheet's gonna be in a good position you're never go now golden state's a little bit mental but we'll come to that these are teams that sustained greatness for prolonged periods now boston is a big sports market but it's not new york it's not la it's not chicago but it's a big enough market but for the patriots to sustain greatness the way they have for 20 years. Now, recent years, obviously, they've taken a dip since Brady left and the team got a little bit old and slow and less talented and they didn't have the weapons and the skill positions at running back and wide receiver and whatever. And Belichick's made some questionable decisions, but Belichick sustained greatness there for 20 years. Popovich with the Spurs. You look at what he was able to do when he stepped in to be the head coach, having previously been the general manager, and the way he was able to just tank for one season because David Robinson got injured, get Tim Duncan, and then sustain greatness season after season after season. And obviously in recent years, They've made some mistakes. The Kawhi Leonard trade, they didn't get nearly enough back. They probably should have traded them earlier. And their team has become, this season, very, very poor. They traded away DeJounte Murray, and they've gone full in the tank to try and get Victor Wenbanyama. Failing him, they might get Scoot Henderson, and they'll look to reload off of that. But they sustained greatness for a long, long time. The Warriors haven't sustained it for as long, but we are now pushing towards 10 years with Steve Kerr and Joe Lakeup as the owner and four titles, four, three, sorry, three legendary homegrown players that they drafted in Steph, Clay, and Draymond. They've lost key pieces like Sean Livingston. Iguodala left. He came back. He's not the same player, but he can still add a little bit more so in the locker room than on the court. They obviously lost a massive piece in in Kevin Durant when he decided that three years there was enough and and bounced to, to Brooklyn. But they've overcome serious injuries They've overcome so much and they they still remain elite at what they do. This season they're having a down year, but if they get into once they get into the playoffs, no one's gonna want to see them. It doesn't matter if they're on the road in each round, they won't care. Now they could do it fixing the road for them because it's been abysmal this year, but they they're gonna be a problem for anybody once the playoffs come around. And then the Braves recently won a World Series. They're a team that dominated the AL East for a long, long time. No, the NL East. Excuse me, the NL East for a long, long time. Always had a really good farm system. Always made clever decisions. I look at them and I see... What I mostly see is I see talented people behind the scenes. If you look around the NBA now and you look at the amount of coaches that either played for or coached under Greg Popovich, it is 
a staggering number. Over, I think over, I, I'm almost certain for this, over a quarter of the teams in the NBA have someone as their head coach, either coached under or played for Popovich. There's also lots of them in the college ranks as well now. Then you look around NBA front offices and you see people in, be it general manager or assistant general manager, or director of scouting, director of pro personnel, the amount of people that came from the Spurs organization. So what they've been able to do is they've hired the best people routinely. They've developed the best people routinely. And then they've replaced them with more great people. And I think Golden State, to their credit, have been able to do quite similar. Um, Bob Myers, as general manager, has done an, an insanely good job. He's actually had a contract this year. They need to get that. They need to get that sorted quickly, because every franchise in the NBA is eyeing him and thinking if we could get him to come in and run things. Um. And the same with the Patriots. I mean, for a long time, other teams came and they they plucked Patriot coaches, Patriot front office people, and brought them into their organizations, hoping to get some of that Patriot way, some of that Spurs way. The Braves were the same for many years in the, the 90s, 2000s, where if a team was looking for an assistant general manager, they go and find, you know, who do they have in in a role just below that so we can give them a promotion and get them here and take some of their culture and try and, you know, merge it with what we're doing here. And the other one I'd look at is is the Alabama, Alabama Crimson Tide under Nick Saban. And again, a lot of it is longevity. A lot of it is good decision-making. But a lot of it is also turnover. You've got to be turning over your staff. You've got to be turning over your playing squad. Now, people will look at Golden State and say, well, well, Clef, uh, Clef, Clay, Steph, and Draymond have been there since day one. Yeah, but the pieces around them have changed. Wiggins came in. They drafted Poole. The James Wiseman pick didn't work out, whatever, but you know, you look at their roster now. They drafted Patrick Baldwin. They brought in Dante DiVincenzo, who's a really good fit. Um, they brought in Jamichael Green. It hasn't worked out, but you could see the logic in it. Uh, Ty Jerome's another one that made sense. Kaminga is one they drafted. Anthony Lamb's in on a two-way. He's a clever player. He fits what they do. Gary Payton, the second they brought back. They had him before. He's a player that makes sense there. What they're really good at is identifying players who fit what they do, the specific style of basketball. And, like, here's a perfect example of the greatness of Greg Popovich, Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr played under Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich. Steve Kerr's style of basketball as a coach resembles very little of what he learned under Phil Jackson and very much what he learned under Greg Popovich. The Spurs way, the Patriots way, that this way of doing things, this intrinsic style of play, 
of identifying players that fit your style of play, of identifying bargains on the margins, of continually having the very best people come through your organisation and adding something. The team Liverpool can most take from to get themselves out of the mess that they've put themselves into is Liverpool. Circa 2016 to 2019. That's the model. Nothing else. The Spurs don't copy anybody. They copy themselves. The Patriots the same. The Braves the same. The reason the Braves got their asses back to winning a World Series after some dang years was because they went back to what had made them great in the past. The reason I have no doubt that the Spurs will once again rise to be one of the best teams in the NBA is because they won't move away from their model. They will empower people in positions to make things better. They will not marginalise the important people at the club. Liverpool have marginalised Michael Edwards and Ian Graham. Those two are now gone. The second and third most important people at the club, non-playing staff, gone. Because number one, didn't want to share the power anymore. And what makes him different from Popovich, from Kerr, and from Belichick, well, Kerr is a different case because he has a general manager. Popovich has kind of always been the general manager. R.C. Buford just kind of worked around the margins with him. Patriots had similar situations where Belichick was general manager and he might have a Scott Pioli or Thomas Dimitrov working around the margins with him. Both of them went on to be general managers in their own right to varying degrees of success. But they were all... He, Popovich and and, and uh, Belichick were always willing to listen. Nick Saban is the best college coach of all time because he's willing to listen. That's what makes them great. Willing to listen to the right people, not the wrong people. Uh, Isaac Gilding, this Arsenal team, to their credit, are making the most of a season where all their usual competitors are underperforming and are on track for a high 80s, low 90s point total. But as we've spoken about before, there is still something about them that isn't convincing. They don't make me feel like I'm watching one of the better league teams of any era, and I personally don't feel like they're near the level of recent City or Liverpool teams. With that in mind, which past iterations of teams do you think they're level with? They remind me of Liverpool 17-18, for example. Maybe even the first half of that season pre-VVD. Um, yeah, no, they're, they're nowhere near as good as the Liverpool and Manchester City teams of of past. I would say that the City team that finished second in 1920 was better than this Arsenal team. And they finished miles off the pace. Uh, Liverpool 17-18 is definitely a good shout. Um, if we're including other clubs, I mean, United finished second a couple of seasons. And if, you know, you just disappeared City out of the equation, they might have won the league. That's kind of what this is. City have made themselves fall out. Do you know who they really remind me of, though? 
They remind me of the Roy Evans era Liverpool team. Um, very interesting to watch going forward, though more repetitive. They're, they've got that Guardiola type of repetitive nature where it's the same thing over and over again. They just wear you down. But they do have exciting attacking players. But they're soft at the back. And Liverpool were soft at the back. Liverpool were heavily reliant on one or two players at that point. Arsenal are heavily reliant on one or two players. They remind me of Roy Evans era Liverpool. A Liverpool team that was maybe... No, this this is this season, not every season. This season, Arsenal are probably the most interesting team to watch just because it's working. City doesn't work, and City are quite dull now anyway. Um, City are dull because we've seen it for so long. Arsenal are a little bit interesting because it's kind of new. Um, but I remember watching that Roy Evans-era team who'd finish fourth, third, fourth, and then third again. And, you know, you'd always just wish that, let's say that last Roy Evans team, 97-98, before Houllier uh, came in and they became joint managers and then Roy left, that 97-98 team, Liverpool finished third. They finished third behind a great United team who won the treble the next season and a great Arsenal team who, if I'm not mistaken, won the double that year. You'd always just think, well, if they just if those two just go away, they, they they just fall off a cliff, we might win the league here. Well, that's what's happened. Liverpool have fallen off a cliff, and City have just kind of gone away. But that's who they remind me of. Good going forward, soft defensively. Like that Liverpool team had Fowler, Owen, McManaman. Like you're not. Getting, I don't think any English club has ever had a trio of homegrown players as good as those three. And imagine none of them got to reach the potential of the club. That's just appalling. But we had other really good players that year. We had Berger, we had Redknapp, we had Insin midfield, we had McAteer as a wing back. Rob Jones, now he was getting more and more injured at this point, but he's still very good. Centre-back was the issue for us that year. Like, we had uh, Bjorn Tork Vorme, Phil Babb, Ruddock, Matteo, Dominic Matteo, Jesus Christ. You know, we had David James and Brad Friedel as our goalkeepers that year. That was strong. But that defence let us down. And I think Arsenal's undoing will ultimately be the defence. So I think when teams are physical with that defence, they really struggle. Filler caused them huge problems. Brentford battered them. And Everton caused them huge problems. It's ran over them. Teams that are going to that are willing to put it up to Arsenal physically will cause them problems. The last question I have, I can't remember who asked me. They asked me on Twitter maybe a week ago. And it was basically about the difference in the build-up play between Graham Potter's Brighton and Roberto De Zerbi's Brighton. So the most basic way that I can frame this, shape-wise, they play similar enough shape. 
But the way they build through phases is different. With Potter's team, they would move the ball. They would move the ball left. They would move the ball right. They'd move it forward. They'd move it back. They would move the ball and they would try to create an opening in the opposition team. With the Zerbi style of football, they don't move the ball. You'll see Brighton defenders put their foot in the ball. They're not looking to create an opening. They're waiting for the opposition to create the opening. And then they transfer the ball far quicker. The Zerbi's Brighton will go back to front much quicker, much more directly than, and I don't mean directly in terms of one ball, though if that's on, they will do that. I'm talking about a ball straight into the middle of the park and then out to the winger and then we're in the penalty area. Whereas with Potter, you get a ball to the left back, a ball back to centre back, ball into midfield and out to the right back, up to the right winger, back into midfield, might come across to the left winger and then you might get the ball into the box. Whereas with the Zerbi, it's much more purposeful. So his game plan is... Let's wait out the opposition. Let's make them jump first. Let's not make their decisions for us. Force them to make a decision. Force the innate nature of players' desire to have a football to overcome any tactical instruction they've gotten from the sideline. So you will see, be it Dunk, Webster, Caldwell, whoever, put their foot in the ball and just wait. Then they might knock it to the other centre-back and he'll put his foot in it. And then they'll wait. And they might give it to the full-back and it'll come back and they'll put the foot in it and it'll wait. And they will wait for the opposition to just bite, just once. And then they will quickly transition through their pattern of play. Set patterns of play that they know in each circumstance, this is where the ball is going. It's one and two touch. It's about movement. It's about rotation. It's about wingers and fullbacks overloading. I think the Zerbi's brand of football is maybe the most attractive in the world right now. I, I, I know I said Arsenal might be the most interesting. Brighton are the most interesting team to watch from a tactical point of view. And I, that's, a, that's a very basic description that I've given, and it covers a very small amount. But... That's the basic difference between what Potter wants, where Potter tries to manufacture openings and Deserby tries to exploit openings. He Potter Potter has his players make decisions. Deserby makes the opponents make decisions. And he preys on weaknesses, mental weaknesses. Lapses in concentration. But you watch... You watch McAllister before he receives the ball and watch him scan. And he goes left to right. If the ball is to his left, he'll go left to right and then back to where he's going. Because he'll have spotted where the weak point is. And they are so so slick at moving the ball quickly 
into their patterns, into the areas that they wanted in. And then they've got individual match winners. Like if what they're looking to do is is create one-on-ones for their wingers as well. Potter wanted to create centralized opportunity. And the end product for the Zerbi is also centralized opportunity, but centralized opportunity to create mismatches out wide. He wants to get his winger one-on-one with the fullback with his own fullback overlapping. And then he wants to make their fullback make a decision. Do I stick with my man? Do I cover that fullback? And in Matoma and Astupin and down the left, that, that is probably the best combination in the league right now. They're, they're an absolute joy to watch. Right, folks, that will do me for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. And I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Network.